Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to listen to a classic episode titled Tech Stuff Goes on a Voyage. It's about the Voyager program. And this episode originally published on April 24th, 2013. The Voyager program is one of those really fascinating space programs that I absolutely loved learning about. So I hope you guys enjoy this classic episode. The first thing we wanted to talk about was uh, kind of what was the purpose of the Voyager missions, uh, which, by the way, are still going Still right going now. on right now. Uh, but we wanted to talk about kind of the, the timeline of the, the missions, and then we'll get into more details about the spacecraft itself, and then follow that up with a discussion about the science that has been discovered by these amazing spacecraft. Uh, so going back to May 1972, that's when NASA begins to fund a mission that will involve design 
designing, building, and launching spacecraft that are meant to explore the outer planets of our solar system. And even before this, back in 1965, an engineer named Gary Flandro noticed that sometime in the 1970s, the outer planets would be aligned, planetary alignment, in such a way as to make this very possible. And, and this was, you know, the space program was going and booming, and it was kind of an incredible alignment of the stars that yeah. allowed us to write when we had money to do this stuff. Right. So, so I mean, that planetary alignment is really what makes the Voyager missions possible because, you know, if the if the planets were in such an alignment so that, let's say that... Or misalignment. Sat- misalignment. <laughs> well, they're still aligned properly. They're just not... Uh, viable for us to explore. Sure. But let's say let's say like Jupiter's on one side of the sun and Saturn's on the other side of the sun, then it would be really tricky to design a a, a spacecraft a trajectory that to, could explore mm-hmm. both, right? Sure, yeah. So, and uh, and this particular alignment isn't going to occur again for another 176 years. So you had to jump on the opportunity. And, yeah. and so in 1972, uh, even though it was still years away from when this alignment would occur, NASA gets on the ball and starts to design this. And in 1977, uh, they are finished with the design, and uh, the spacecraft they had been designing was under the working name, the Mariner Jupiter slash Saturn 1977. But they decided to rename it. A little bit of a mouthful, yeah. Yeah, they called it Voyager. And uh, on August 20th, 1977, a Titan Centaur rocket carried one of the two Voyager spacecraft from Cape Canaveral, Florida, into the atmosphere and ultimately into space. Which one was it that launched first? It was Voyager 2 that launched first. Which one launched second? Voyager 1. Okay, so <laughs> so this this was basically for PR purposes because the the way that they were designed, Voyager One was going to due to its trajectory, it was going to reach Jupiter first. Yes, and so start sending back images of Jupiter. You know, fingers crossed if all goes well first. And NASA thought that the public would be incredibly confused if uh, if, if, if Voyager One launched first but got to the planet second. second. Whereas some, for some reason, launching second and getting to the planet first is less confusing. No, no one was paying attention to the launch. Yeah, they, goodness knows, no one pays attention to, to something as spectacular. As, yeah, the one thing you're actually able to watch while you're still on Earth. Uh, yeah, it's it still makes me tear up every single time anything gets launched into space. I'm like, just humanity is so beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, when you think about what it takes to get something into space, it is phenomenal. The amount of engineering and ingenuity that went into that. But yes, Absolutely. so the Voyager 2 launches first. The Voyager 1 launches about 16 days later. In fact, not about. 16 days later it launches. <laughs> Precisely, on September 5th. Yep, 1977. Uh, and it's using the same sort of rocket, the Titan Centaur rocket, which, by the way, love it. Um, anyway, the initial purpose was for these to explore the giant planets in the outer solar system. Those giant planets are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Um, Pluto, of course, not a giant planet. It does not get the the, the treatment. Uh, not yep. for these missions. Forget you, Pluto. And there were two separate trajectories that were being used. Uh, Voyager 1, of course, was designed so that the trajectory was chosen so that it would reach Jupiter first then move on to Saturn, and then get flung off to head toward interstellar space. Uh, Voyager 2 
would do a visit to all four of the giant planets. Right. So that's why uh, you have the different timelines, because even though Voyager 2 launched first, for it to be able to hit this trajectory where it was going to to pass by each of the four giants, it had to do that at a different At a different angle. Yeah. So that's the, you know, and if you were to just look at a model of the solar system and just spin the planets around at the different rates, uh, you would see, like, oh, yeah, now I understand. You would have to be really particular about when you would launch and how you would launch for it to be able to hit all of these points properly. I mean, it's an amazing amount of engineering that's required and, and just math that's required to make sure that you've got the right the right timing. Yeah, and it was it was kind of shady. You know, basically until it happened, no one was sure that it was going to happen. Right. And, uh, and it's interesting because the Voyager spacecraft actually used the planets themselves to help make sure they got to where they needed to go, but we'll get into that. Yes. It's pretty awesome, though. So, moving down the timeline, they, they've launched in 1977. Uh, uh, almost two years later, on March 5th, 1979, Voyager 1 has its closest approach to Jupiter, and it captures a lot of images of Jupiter and Jupiter's moons. Uh, and then July 9th, 1979, so same year, that's when Voyager 2 passes closest to Jupiter. Uh, then we go to the next year, on November 12th, 1980, Voyager 1 has its closest approach to Saturn, and then it begins its trip out of the solar system, saying, so long, suckers, and starts heading off into the, well, it would be the sunset, except it can't be at that the, point. The opposite of the sunset. Right. The, yeah. It's not the sunrise either. That's, that Inter- would normally be the opposite of a sunset. Um, the, the sun diminishing into a tinier ball, I guess. Yes. Not nearly as poetic, but uh, August 25th, 1981, that's when Voyager 2 gets its closest approach to Saturn. But of course, Voyager 2 is not flung off into interstellar space right away. Instead, it is then heading toward Uranus, which it passes closest to on January 24th, 1986. So it took five years for Voyager 2 to go from Saturn to Uranus. Uh, and it would take um, it would take a few more years before it would like five well three more years I'm sorry three more years before it would get close to Neptune, uh, but before we get to that point, 1987 Voyager two observes the supernova 1987A. Oh. Uh, 1988, Voyager returns the first color images of Neptune, so that Voyager 2, that is. So it's getting closer to Neptune in 1988. It's still not the closest it will be, but that's when we first start getting color images of Neptune back from Voyager. And on August 25th, 1989, it, Voyager 2 has its closest approach to Neptune, and that concludes the primary mission of the of both Voyager spacecraft, that primary mission being the exploration of those outer planets. So the cost of the missions from 1972 to the time when they finished their mission, their primary mission, uh, was $865 million dollars. Now, NASA points out that if you break this down by the population of the United States and year over year, that's about eight cents per person per year. So it's so not too shabby. Yeah, it's essentially saying, like, look, really in the grand scheme, of, it sounds like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, this is just a tiny investment. So look at these three so pictures of Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Keep, keep calm and keep exploring is what they said. Oh, I hate that meme. Anyway, uh, so the, that, that $865 million included everything. It included the expense of the launch vehicles, uh, the radioactive power source, which we'll get to talk about in a little bit, uh, and, and just the maintaining of the missions. Uh, by 1989, Voyager 1 was heading toward interstellar space. 
And uh, on Valentine's Day in 1990, we get the final images from Voyager, which is a portrait of the solar system. Oh, Happy Valentine's Day. I gave you the solar system. Sweet. Not shabby. Uh, three days later, February, uh, uh, I'm sorry, three days in eight years later. <laughs> on Fe- See, I should read the year before I read the you date. You should, you should. February 17th, 1998. I have all my notes in front of me. It's just, you know, my typing and viewing skills are apparently, there's something to be desired. Diminished today. Yeah. 1998, February 17th, the Voyager 1 passes the Pioneer 10, which had obviously been launched previously. And so that makes the Voyager 1 the most distant human-made object in space. It is still, to this day, the most distant human-made object in space. It's actually most distant stir than it was, because it keeps going. That was good grammar. Thank there. you. Well, I figured I might as well m- measure up to my reading and comprehension skills. Uh, December 15th, 2004, Voyager 1 crosses the termination shock. Termination shock. This is this is uh, pretty cool, guys. Into the helio sheath. Yeah, so here's, here's some things that you need to know about our wacky little solar system here. You might ask, what's the edge of the solar system? Is it Pluto? No, 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 it's not Pluto. Well, I mean, again, it all depends on how you're defining the edge of the solar system. But the way NASA defines it, nope, not Pluto. Well, might say, uh, well especially since it's not, it's still not a planet, right? No, That's it's, not a dwarf, a, it's a dwarf planet. Yeah, uh, there's um, that. Never mind. There's, yeah, it's you know, it's Pluto is right there with happy, sneezy, sleepy, dopey, doc, bashful. Uh, so. Uh, termination shock, that's that's the point where the solar wind particles start to slow down. They were traveling essentially at kind of the speed of sound would be. But anyway, they're traveling really fast. They start slowing down because uh, you can think of um, the solar wind as this uh, this force that pushes outward from the sun. All right. Now think of the interstellar space kind of having its own pressure. It's sort of like air pressure. Mm-hmm. It's pushing in on the solar Except system. Except made of magnetic fields instead yeah. of air pressure. Right. Or so air. Exactly. They're not air particles. It's all... It's, we're talking... There are particles out in space, but that's that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the solar wind is pressing against these, these uh, other pressures. So once you get to the point where the solar wind is slowing down, that's the termination shock. Right. There, there's kind of a boundary with a, with a shock wave there. And also... Still not the edge of the solar system. No, you've not also, at all. You also have the the heliosphere. Now this is where we still have we still have evidence of the solar wind within the heliosphere. Mm-hmm. Then you have the heliopause, which is the very boundary of where the solar wind is, and that still is not the edge of the solar system. Not according to NASA. Right. According to NASA, really, we need to think of the edge of the solar system as being a, a, an area where the sun's gravitational pull has no greater effect on you than any other particular celestial body out there. So in other words, you aren't being pulled toward the solar system at that point any more than you're being pulled toward Anything some else. other point. Right? Yeah. So that that area is ill-defined by the very nature of gravity, mm-hmm. but... Um, that would take us a very long time to get there, and we'll talk about that when we get into the science section. Right. So anyway, termination shock has all these fluctuating magnetic fields due to the change in the speed of the solar wind, and that's kind of why it's called what it's called. And Voyager 1, like I said, crossed it on December fifteenth, two 2004, and begins to encounter the interstellar medium. That doesn't mean that it's in interstellar space yet, but it's starting to encounter the particles that would be in interstellar space. 
September 5th, 2007, three years later, that's when Voyager 2 catches up and crosses the termination shock at a totally different point, by the way. These two spacecraft are in two totally different sections. Of yeah, the, yeah. The, no, nowhere near each other anymore. Yeah, not at all. And in, in July in 2012, Voyager 1 enters a new region of space, which is still inside the solar system. <laughs> it, it's another region of the helio heliosphere, heliosheaf, yep. called a magnetic highway. Yep. And the directions of the particles that it's encountering are beginning to change, which suggests that the spacecraft is at the very edge of the heliosphere. And um, engineers didn't expect that the data that they got back. They thought that it would have passed beyond this point earlier, which just tells us that our solar system is actually larger Bigger than what than we, we thought. thought we that was. the sun is more powerful than we previously expected. Yeah, never underestimate the power of the sun. It can turn me red in a matter of minutes. I'm a, very susceptible to that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's we've already talked about how they have um, they they left at different times, and their pathways meant that they are traveling in different directions and different at different speeds, uh, and they visited different. You know, like Voyager two visited two more planets than Voyager one did. But we talked about how the planets helped move the spacecraft and direct the spacecraft. So, if you guys have seen science fiction films like uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where they slingshot around the sun. They're actually using the sun's gravity to kind of uh, accelerate a ship to the point where it can travel back in time. I don't understand that, by the way. If you've got warp speed, you technically... Anyway, that's another episode. We already did that episode. We talked <laughs> right. about hyperdrive. Yes, yes, we did. But anyway, yeah. they use it to slingshot around the sun, which magically lets them travel back in time. Uh, there's some truth to that in the sense that we have used that same kind of principle with designing the Voyager spacecraft. Oh, right. What we what we kind of realized is that if you okay, you know, you're, you're you're moving towards a planet. Yep. You're a probe. Okay. Okay. And uh, as you move towards the planet, you're going to start accelerating as the planet's gravitational pull starts pulling you in. Right. If you only kind of graze by it, then hypothetically you'll decelerate on the way out because you're losing energy to that gravitational pull. Right. And uh, by the way, because of the conservation of energy, technically the planet's orbit actually slows. Sure. Uh, infinitesimally. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, see, I've got it. Wait, wait, wait. I, I have it written down. I know I've got it written down. It's something like uh, uh, one foot in a trillion years. <laughs> <laughs> well, but hey, that is an impact. You are you are making a difference. Right. But, um, that J- Jupiter's going to be a little late to its, uh, to its uh, appointment in one trillion years. Right. However, because planets are moving in their orbits, if you are going on the same trajectory as a planet's orbit, you can pick up that orbital speed. Right. As you slingshot around the planet. Yep. And so that that has allowed the Voyager spacecraft to uh, get propulsion from one planet to the next without having to have massive thrusters on board. In fact, when we get to the actual description of the spacecraft, you'll find out that their thrusters are not incredibly not powerful, powerful at all. Not powerful at all, yeah. Uh, but uh, they were able to use the power of gravity to yeah. direct and, and propel themselves yeah, to their specifically something paths. as large as, as Jupiter. You know, it's moving through space at, at something like 30,000 miles per hour, 48,000 kilometers, and... Uh, uh, yeah. So, so uh, and that, and that's yeah. It's a completely free energy boost of about that much speed. Yeah. According to NASA, because of uh, the use of planetary gravity, Voyager two ended up having a uh, fuel economy of about thirteen thousand kilometers per liter, or thirty thousand miles per gallon. That's efficient. That beats that beats my car. That's highway miles. Uh, city miles they did not give me, so I don't I don't know how it would do in the city. Uh, there, the Voyager two's flight path. Uh, got a look, like we said, at all four of the giant planets. Um, 
and uh, and it's a couple of billion miles further inside the solar system than the Voyager One. So the Voyager One got a, a kind of a head start into interstellar space, um, uh, and it is more than eleven billion or seventeen point seven eleven billion miles or seventeen point seven billion kilometers away from the sun at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, more, more than eighteen as of as of today. There, there's oh, a there's, right. a there's a tracker on on NASA. Nice. Where you can check all this out. So uh, and and uh, at that distance, it takes hours for a uh, for data to go from the spacecraft to be picked up here on earth about 17 hours wow yeah so that's a long time so and uh, the the way that let me let me find my note on it, the, it it's really interesting the way that they receive those radio signals because they're they're pretty far away they're getting increasingly difficult to detect all the times so they have a whole series of 230-foot radio dishes right, specifically to pull Voyager data. These are the deep space antenna that they have to pick up this information. Um, and uh, and they actually upgraded those over the, the course of the life of the Voyager program. Uh, when they first started, they were significantly smaller. And they didn't have to be as big because the Voyager spacecraft were relatively closer to the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now now we've gotten to a point where we keep upgrading the antenna so that we can continue to pick up these increasingly weak signals. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, according to NASA, the missions from uh, Earth to Neptune required the equivalent of 11,000 work years of human work. Wow. 11,000 work years, which they said is only a third of what it took to build the, the Great Pyramid. So well, hey, so you know we're slacking, yeah, honestly. Yeah, you know, really, they're just saying, look how much more efficient we are. They were piling up rocks. We were sending a spacecraft into space, um, and uh, and again, we've learned that the solar system is actually larger than what we uh, previously uh, anticipated. Yeah, and um, so by the time the Voyager two flew by Neptune, the two spacecraft together had transmitted about five trillion bits of scientific data back at Earth, and it was someone's job to look at all that. But yeah, the deep space tracking antennas are the ones we were talking about earlier that have been upgraded several times. And that, that kind of, uh, that's the, the brief overview of the mission. And next we're going to take a look at the spacecraft itself and also some kind of cool, uh, records that are above the, the two spacecraft. But before we do that, let's take a quick pause to thank our sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. 
Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about the actual spacecraft for a minute. We know what they were supposed to do and what they have done. Um, so, uh, oh, and one thing I did not mention, I guess, is that the whole inter- interstellar travel stuff, that's totally planned as well. In fact, has been added on as a secondary mission. The primary right. mission was the outer planets. Mm-hmm. Secondary is, what's up with this interstellar <laughs> stuff we don't know anything about? Uh-huh. Well, they, they, they realized that their power sources would work until about 2020. And yeah. so figured, well, hey, let's just kind of roll with it. Yeah, yeah. So that's 2020 to 2025. That's about when we expect the power uh, resources to be to the point where they can no longer power the, the transmitter to send us back data. And we'll talk about that. That's one of the things that uh, that's interesting about this spacecraft. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of interesting things. So both of them... Uh, because, each, because they're identical. Yes, they are identical. So each one of them weighs just under a ton. And now when they were on top of the uh, the launch vehicle, they weighed a lot more than that. But the, the spacecraft themselves are just under a ton each on Earth, obviously, because mm. weight is all relative to where you are. Yes. Uh, and they are each made up of about 65,000 individual parts. But these parts are often made up of tinier components. So... They have a term they use, uh, which is equivalent parts. And equivalent parts means, like, if you were to look at, for example, if I were to say my computer is part, uh, is is one part of the equipment that I use, someone else could point out, well, that computer has multiple chips in it, and those chips have transistors. And so, really, that one part is a representation of lots and lots and lots of parts. So NASA was like, well, if you want to know how many equivalent parts there are, there are about five million of them. Oh. Uh, compare that to your old standard definition color television 
there'd be about 2,500 equivalent parts. So lots more than a color TV, which is kind of what you want when you're right, exploring Right, yeah, yeah, when, when you're exploring space. Yeah, yeah, you need a little bit more than a... Than your yeah. average standard definition color television? I, would, I agree. I would hope so, yeah. Also, uh, larger than your standard yes, <laughs> color are, TV. Well, unless you're... A crazy rich person. The, the the main body is a is a ten sided box that's about uh, six feet or one point eight meters across, and that's where the um, the fuel tank, the and, and some of the electronic instruments. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about those instruments. There are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whole bunch. Yeah, they they're. Uh, they were. They both have uh, areas that are hardened against radiation and shielded, and the reason for that is obviously that when you go into space, you are going to encounter things that you would not encounter here on the surface of the planet. And the reason for that is that the Earth atmosphere and magnetosphere... Oh, wait, magnetosphere sphere still makes me think that we're watching X Men. Uh, I I would say I would say magnetosphere. I know you would, but, but I oh, like was that a magnetosphere? It is the sphere in which Magneto travels, and it's also a magnetic field that uh, surrounds the Earth, penetrates and binds us together. Uh, like the force. No, what it does is it actually repels certain types of waves and particles, which allows us to remain. To live. Yeah. We, to, we're not right. being bombarded by cosmic radiation or gamma rays or things like that because. Yeah, that, that would uh, the, be a much worse sunburn than that other sunburn yeah. that we were talking about. So the, the combination of the of our atmosphere and the magnetosphere or magnetosphere uh, protects us. And so the thing is that when you're out in space, you don't have the benefit of that protection. So that's why both of them have these these uh, shielding areas and casings that are hardened against radiation to protect them if they were to encounter any of these waves or particles. Uh, clearly very important. Interesting little side fact. So Earth has a, a magnetosphere. Mars doesn't. So if we were to make a colony on Mars, uh, we would not have that protection that we would oh, on right, Earth. Right, we need to compensate for it in some way. Right, so you wouldn't want to go on any long strolls on the Martian soil right. without some serious protection. So yeah. that's all of those all of those uh, fashionable space bikinis that were that were <laughs> really popular back in the 1950s would not probably be good. The interesting thing I heard was I was I was listening and I'll go ahead it was a Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Okay. A great podcast it has no affiliation with us but they are fantastic. Very fun, uh, interesting educational podcast. They had a recent episode where um, they had uh, an astronomer on talking about things like Mars uh-huh. and they were even talking about all right, let's let's look into a science fiction future where we can terraform Mars. So we're able to transform Mars so that the actual surface is habitable. Livable, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even then, because of the lack of the magnetosphere, you would still be prone to things like cosmic radiation, gamma radiation. You would you would still be vulnerable to that. So you would not be able to terraform it for any extended length of time. Eventually, that stuff would kill the life on that planet. Oh, right, because things like gamma radiation, for example, aren't as cool as, for example, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles make it sound. Or um, it the Hulk. Must, mostly, you just die. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not it's not attractive. You don't uh, become in fact, a ninja. Uh, NASA said that because of of the distance from uh, the 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 Voyager spacecraft passed close enough to Jupiter that it received more than a thousand times the radiation that would be a lethal level of radiation for a for human, human person. Being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a human person. Yes. Um, so moving on to more things that are on board this, this these spacecraft. Uh, it has a it has a twelve foot or a three point seven meter uh, high gain antenna, which looks like a satellite dish. Yeah, this is what allows it to transmit and receive data to and from Earth. 
And um, no matter where it goes, the, the antenna is programmed to always point towards Earth. Yes, that's uh, it's actually got a gyroscopic uh, uh, system so that no matter how it's oriented, it can uh, it can readjust its attitude so that the uh, the antenna is pointing toward us, so we can have the best chance possible uh-huh. to pick up those radio transmissions. Um, it has a lot of different instruments aboard, including uh, besides the high gain antenna, uh, it's got a low energy charged particle instrument, an ultraviolet spectrometer, which currently only the Voyager One is using to collect data. Uh, has both narrow and wide angle imaging instruments, also known as cameras. Uh, <laughs> it's got a uh, fancy, fancy 800 by 800 cameras yeah. because this was launched in the 1970s yes. and that seemed pretty cool at the time. Yeah. Uh, it has a cosmic ray instrument so it can detect and measure cosmic rays. Mm-hmm. A uh, photopolarimeter, which I have no idea what it does. I, I, was, I, I ran into it and I thought, that's really cool. And I never actually looked more into it because yeah, I, me I was lucky I'm, that I could say it. Uh, there's an infrared interferometer spectrometer, mm-hmm. uh, an optical calibration targeting system, a planetary radio astronomy and plasma wave antenna. Uh, each spacecraft has two of those. Um, and uh, also known as the Planetary Radio Astronomy Instrument, or PRA. Uh, has the pl- a plasma instrument. Uh, Voyager 1's plasma instrument is non-functional, but all other instruments are in working order. And Voyager 2 is still uh, collecting data through its plasma uh, instruments. Uh, it's got... Uh, it also has, gets its power from three radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And currently, it gets about 315 watts of power. Now... The, the spacecraft are designed so that all of their systems can operate at about 400 watts of power. Okay. So it's able to, uh, it's still getting power, but it's not enough power to operate everything. And in fact, they designed the Voyager spacecraft with this in mind. The idea being that as the power, uh, as the power supply begins to decrease, it begins to shut down unnecessary, unnecessary instruments. Yeah. Okay. So originally, there were 11 different um Projects that were involved in gathering data from the Voyager systems and, and processing that data here on Earth. There were 11 of them. Mm-hmm. Currently, only five of them are still in operation because the other systems have been progressively shut down to make sure that the Voyager uh, spacecraft can still send us information. And like you said, by 2020 or 2025 or so, that's when we expect the power to have run down enough where we're not going to be able to get any more information from them because it's just not going to have the power necessary to broadcast. Right, right. Well, because the way that this this engine of sorts works is that uh, pellets of plutonium dioxide release heat through their own natural decay process. And so once they have finished decaying, that's it. Yeah, yep, that's true. Oh, and then oh, I forgot. It also has a magne- uh, magnetometer boom, which right. is designed to to measure magnetic fields. Yes. So that was one of those things we didn't really know a lot about the magnetic fields of the outer planets before we sent these these uh, spacecraft up. That's one of the really huge uh, sources of information that it is it has sent us. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so then it has a, a flight data subsystem which handles all the information, and it has an eight track digital tape recorder. So you got an eight track up there. It's a uh, it. So the FDS configures, controls, collects data from the various instruments, and the tape recorder handles the data from the plasma wave subsystem because that's the one that gets the highest uh, density of data and the shortest amount of time. So okay. the data tape recorder was the cutting edge technology 
to uh, handle that that information. And uh, according to NASA, the tape in the digital recorder won't wear out until the tape has moved back and forth through a distance that is equivalent to the width of the United States. Uh, that is not terribly um, precise because the United States is not a perfect rectangle. But in general, I would say that's probably about 3,000 miles, which is around 4,800 kilometers. I assume what they mean is that it's it's doing fine. Yeah. So what they're saying is that that tape is capable of traveling that collective amount of distance uh-huh. without breaking. Right. So you've got to remember, the tape itself is not that long. It's just saying that they would, you know, by the time you would go through all this tape and it's worn out, you could have gone all the way across uh, the the United States using that same distance of tape being played through. Just kind of, uh, that's kind of impressive. Uh, it has a command computer subsystem which provides sequencing and control functions, which includes fault detection, corrective routines, antenna pointing data, and spacecraft sequencing data. The fault detection involves seven top-level fault protection routines, and each one is able to detect and correct for several possible failures. Oh, basically, it just means that there's the the computer has multiple modules, and they compare data back and forth between each other, and right. and it will decide if if one module is differing from the others that that one's faulty, and to cut it out of the system. Yes, and it also means that both of the spacecraft are capable of shutting down. Uh, systems if it needs to automatically, right. autonomously. Because Which was so important because we can't broadcast to these things. They broadcast to us, but they don't have receivers. They don't know. Their antenna could receive information. Could they? Yeah, oh. but it means that it would take 17 hours for the information to get to us and 17 hours for the information to get back. And by then, whatever the problem was is probably not the biggest issue at that point. Right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that it's important to have something that can act autonomously if uh, if you know if the communication is a barrier. Same sort of thing with the the Curiosity rover when it was landing on the surface of Mars. You know, a, a lot of that landing, in fact, all of the landing was autonomous because there was no right. time for us to send any adjustments to the system. It was like you're on your own. Yeah, by the time we would be able to send an adjustment, it would have already either crashed or landed safely. Right. So you had to design a spacecraft that could do this, uh, or else it just wouldn't work. Although. Pretty impressive in the 1970s for for the amount of computing power that was going on. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it also had an attitude in our... Or still has. I don't know why I'm using the past tense. It's still out there. It is dead to you. (laughs) The attitude and articulation control subsystem, which is also known as the AACS, it's in charge of maintaining the spacecraft orientation and positions the scan platform. So this is what we're talking about, the system that's that's in charge of making sure that that antenna is pointed back at Earth. And also that the scan platform, which is really, you know, the instrumentation panel... It's pointing in the right direction to get the data that it needs. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's got a three-axis stabilization system and uses celestial or gyro-referenced attitude control to make the high-gain antenna point back to Earth. Now, um, we talked about the fact that there is an interesting gold-plated copper disc on board each of the two Voyager spacecraft. Right. Uh, the golden records they are referred to yeah. as. So this was a this was a really cool idea. Uh, you know who, of course, was the chairman for this? Carl Sagan. Yes, he he had billions and billions of suggestions, but not all of them could make it onto the disc, obviously. Right, and and these are these are these these gold plated copper discs engraved like vinyl records. Yeah, yeah, and kids ask your parents. <laughs> Uh, oh, no. Oh, dear. So, no, 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 no. Kids are hipsters these days. They know. They know things right. about vinyl. It's cool. Kids tell your older siblings because they, they missed out on the whole hipster generation. Right. Um, no. All right. So, so yeah, you've, you're talking about a disc that has physical grooves 
that are in it that uh, can be read using a stylus and cartridge, which which were included. They, they included the cartridge and stylus. They did not include a turntable. So aliens aliens are, work it out. They have to build it, but they did leave uh, instructions written in a symbolic language to say, "Here's how you would construct something that would be able to play these things." Right. Uh, they were they're 12 inches in diameter, uh, and they are designed to be played back at 16 and two thirds revolutions per minute. So actually, fairly slowly. I mean, you know, we're thinking about the. Uh, the 45 or 33 revolutions per minute for uh, for your average albums, and this is a uh, 16 and two thirds. So, uh, on these golden records are lots and lots of stuff. Actually, um, it's including things like greetings from in 55 different languages, mm-hmm. including some that aren't being used anymore. And here that on have Earth. not been used in a very long time. Yeah, here like on Akkadian, Earth. Uh-huh. which is a, a Sumerian language, which was last used around 4,000 BC. Uh, a selection of nature sounds. Yep, yep. So if you ever wanted to hear what frogs burping sounded like and you were from, from some distant planet, here's an opportunity to from listen Beetlejuice. in. From Beetlejuice, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a lot of... <laughs> so you're for Ford Prefect and you're on your way to Earth. This is a good way to do some homework before you get there. Right. A lot of traditional music, some uh, some Native American chants, some Scottish bagpipes. Oh, we've uh, got to talk about some of the music that's on here. <laughs> we have to. Af- African ritual music. Uh, there, there's um, a bunch of classical music involved. Yeah, all right. So here, I, I wrote down some of my favorites. Now, okay. th- this is this is obviously there are lots and lots of musical tracks that are on the the records. These are just the ones that I personally wrote down because I, I they resonate with me. Uh, it's not to say that the other ones are not are as useless, good, but, right? I may mm-hmm. not be familiar with some of them. But uh, there's uh, the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two in F. Actually, it's just the first movement. Uh, that's by a guy named uh, Batch. Uh, Johann Batch wrote that. Um, if, if, if you've heard, of, uh, he's just some dude, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two and F. Uh, then uh, there's a uh, uh, Melancholy Blues, which was performed by Louis Armstrong. Uh, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring was included. Uh, Bach actually was pretty well represented on this record. He also had the well-tempered clavier on there. Uh, there was the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know, the da-da-da-da. Uh, there was a Navajo tribes chant. And then, right. of course, the most important, I think, uh, musical work that was included out of all the pieces that were on there. As we, as we all know from the documentary Back to the Future. It, it saved Marty McFly. It'll save the human race. We're talking about Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Yeah. Um, there's actually a book all about the process that they used to select which sounds went on the golden record. Right, yeah. Um, it, it finally came out with a CD companion at some point. I'm sure it's on digital at yeah, this point. Yeah, uh, the book itself is out of print, but you can sometimes find copies. It is called Murmurs from Earth. Uh, so if you want to learn more about how they came about choosing which sounds go in mm-hmm. there, um, that's it's it's a really well done piece. It's it's something yeah. that I've I've heard nothing but good things about it. I personally have not had a chance to read it. Uh, by the time I learned about it, it was running out of print, so um, it's kind of <laughs> right, tricky right. to find. But uh, but yeah, there's also a bunch of images on the discs, including um, a star map clearly showing the location of Earth. Yeah, and um, you saying, uh, "Here's what humans taste like." Maps of Earth images. I'm just I'm just ignoring that entirely. No, <laughs> there are people who have said what a huge mistake it was to essentially include directions directly to, to, our to us. I I, I, I think mean, well, I think it's pr- pretty ridiculous because the odds of assume. anyone any the odds of anyone finding the Voyager space. Well, so, so space is big, as it turns out. Really big. No, no, no. Yeah. Bigger than that. Yeah, not. You might think it's 
a long walk to the chemist down on the corner, but that's just peanuts compared to space. But it's going to be uh, tens of thousands of years before uh, either of the Voyager craft encounter anything near another star. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. So, so really, by the time I'm, I'm betting that we will have either killed ourselves off or hit the singularity. And, and plus, on top of that, you know, it would all depend on from what direction the, the other creatures were approaching Earth. Because, I mean, there's, there are a lot of different vectors you could take, and only a couple of them would in, uh, intersect with the pathway of either Voyager well, spacecraft. Way, way more vectors than most uh, science fiction movies are willing to acknowledge yeah, in there's the more than just the spaceship, ca- spaceship battles. More than just the single plane, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so there was also an hour-long recording of the brainwaves of a woman named Anne Druyan. Who would become Carl Sagan's wife. Yep. She's an author. Uh, she concentrates mainly on cosmology and science, and... Um, she, she, she signed up for this. She volunteered to have her brainwaves recorded. Yeah, she and Carl Sagan had talked about it, and she thought it was a really interesting idea. And so she went in for uh, the, the process where her brain the waves scan. and her heartbeat were, were read and then transferred into data, analog data, we have to say, because it's an analog disk. And um, she says that what she did was she, she thought about big historical moments that were very important in the development of human history. And then she spent some time thinking about... The, the current situation on Earth, how what that's like, no, and, thing, and and not sugarcoating it. Things like uh, violence between people and the the oh, poverty epidemic. And, yeah, yeah. So she really spent some time thinking about things that she felt needed to be addressed, and then she said that she took the liberty toward the end of the session to take a little bit of time and think about what it's like to fall in love, which I think is amazing. It's just the most wonderful, sweet, yeah. Yeah, so now we the, those aliens can't tell us they don't know how to love because she thought about it for, for a while. Darn it. Um, so, yeah, those radio signals do take a long time to get to us, so... Uh, but, uh, and, and the record that's on there, uh, if you want to hear some of the stuff, uh, there are, there are a lot of different sites out there that, that keep all the things that are on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tells you what's there. And most of that's pretty easy to get access to and listen to. We'll try that. We'll try to find one and link it up on social. Yeah. We'll see if we can find something and, uh, you know, maybe I'll see if I can make it a a Spotify playlist or something. I'm not sure. Get a ukulele and play Johnny Be Good on the ukulele. That's, uh. That would probably be Johnny, please stop. That would be the name of that song. All right. So, um, anyway, that's that's kind of the the, the wrap up of uh, the spacecraft and the stuff that was aboard it. But we still haven't talked about the actual science that's returned. So we're going to do that in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a quick moment to thank our other sponsor. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we've talked about what the mission was. We talked about the spacecraft. Let's talk about what the spacecraft found. Uh, so out of the 11 investigation teams that were originally involved in the Voyager mission, like I said earlier, only five of them are still supported. And those five are magnetic field investigation, low-energy charged particle investigation, cosmic ray investigation, plasma investigation, which is only active on the Voyager 2 because the Voyager 1s mm-hmm. doesn't work anymore, and plasma wave investigation. Okay. So plasma investigation, plasma wave investigation, two different things. Right, and these are clearly the more important ones because there's not all that much to, for example, take pictures of. Of yeah, you, you in deep space. W- once you're done taking the photo of the, the the solar system from way the heck out there, there's really no purpose to keep Nothing power to going to that. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's been shut down. Um, and uh, the the five instruments that support these five missions are the magnetic field instrument or MAG, the low energy charged particle instrument, the LECP. Cosmic Ray Instrument, that's the CRS. The Plasma Instrument, that's PLS. And the Plasma Wave Instrument, that's PWS. And uh, really, at this point, uh, now that we've finished taking photos and measurements of all the planets, which that was the main science before, was really getting good images and getting some good scientific data about the actual uh, planets and their moons. It was the origin of the program, yeah, before they kind of realized, oh, hey, we can do more stuff out there. Yeah, so now now we're, we've switched it over to interstellar. But some of the stuff they found 
because of these, and then later on have uh, have expounded upon by sending out other orbiters, uh, like Cassini, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the stuff they discovered were like uh, they they took a closer look at Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons. Yeah, and saw that it had a, a water ice surface, and uh, and originally they thought that maybe Europa could have an ocean underneath that ice, but some scientists now say they think that it's probably more like a slush or maybe even solid, solid huh. ice. Uh, but that was a possibility. Um, they, uh, the Voyager spacecraft also observed Pele, which is the largest of the volcanoes on Io, which is the another moon of Jupiter. Another moon of Jupiter. And uh, they observed that Pele was erupting sulfur and sulfur dioxide. And uh, th- these eruptions were going up to heights that are equivalent to about 30 times the elevation of Mount Everest. Wow. Tallest mountain on Earth. Multiply that by, well, tallest mountain on the surface, like uh, not underwater. Oh, right. Because you could look at underwater and there's and taller And argue mountains. with you there, yes. But, but, uh, but over, above water, it's the tallest mountain on Earth. Yeah. Multiply makes... that by 30 times. That's how high up these uh, eruptions were going. Not necessarily a good vacation spot. Now, uh, the scientists also point out that Io's gravity is about six times weaker than that of Earth's, so it's closer to what our moon has. Uh, but the fallout zone for the... The, the sulfur dioxide that was being uh, thrust into the atmosphere of Io uh, was about the size of France. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that was – when I read that, I was just like, wow, that is a huge, huge volcano. Um, now, the uh, – see, we also had some information about Saturn's uh, largest moon, which is called Titan. Uh, it discovered uh, the oceans of ethane and methane aboard uh, aboard on Titan, not aboard Titan. It, it is technically a space. That's not that's a no space. Moon, that's a space ship. station. Well, not, uh, not a oh, space. It's a satellite. It's, it's, a satellite. it's a satellite. Yes, it's, but it's a natural satellite, not a man-made one. Uh, and it has uh, also discovered that it has a that Titan, the the largest moon of Saturn, has a dense atmosphere and lots of hydrocarbons, and maybe it it could possibly at some point in the past have supported life. Uh, the methane is a possible indication that living things that living, once lived there. Mm-hmm. Now that does not necessarily, and the hydrocarbons as well, but that does not necessarily mean that life ever, ever was on Titan, but it's a possibility. Uh, Voyager also took images of Uranus's rings, which are very difficult to see. They're very faint, right? Um, and, uh, but they did that. They also, uh, observed Saturn's rings and saw that they were made of about 10,000 strands of ice particles and car-sized icebergs. Wow. And that, uh, if you look at them proportionally, their thickness is much, 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 much smaller than the width of the ring. So if you think of it as like a, uh, what are those things called? They're not the frisbees, but you know, the rings, the, the disky, the disky disc throwers. Things. Yeah. They're, they're, yes. they're, they're hollow in the middle, right? They're, sure. they're, so it's just a, it's a disc that doesn't have a center to it. Um, the width of the band is much wider than the thickness of the band is what they discovered. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, now we're talking more about the interstellar work. So they're still inside the heliosphere. Oh, right. And I did want to mention at some point here, uh, on March 20th, and we mentioned this in another podcast that we were recording right around March 20th, right. um, there were there were false reports that, that it had left the heliosphere and entered interstellar space. And those were... Those were false reports. Yeah, NASA came out and said, mm, no, not quite. Hasn't done that we, yet. We've not seen the changes in the uh, magnetic radiation that we are expecting yeah. to see. So, so they did say that they had seen some changes in particle movement, which at first would have indicated that the spacecraft had moved out of the heliosphere. But, but then was... they found from the magnetic movement 
that's not the case. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where, again, we keep finding out the solar system is larger as we learn more about how it's behaving. Mm-hmm. So uh, now the next step in this you could think of the, the interstellar exploration being in three phases. Uh, the first was crossing the termination shock, which both of the spacecraft have already done. The next is the exploration of the helio sheath, which is happening right now. Mm-hmm. And then the third is interstellar exploration, which is when the spacecraft have passed beyond the heliopause boundary. Now, the heliopause boundary, you can think of this as kind of like a bubble around the sun that co- completely encompasses the, uh, the, the, the entire solar system. It's not a perfectly round bubble, so don't think no. of it like that, but it's, it's this wibbly wobbly area. Uh, and beyond this boundary, there's no solar wind or magnetic field from the sun. However, there's still the gravitational influence of the sun at that point. But uh, particles and waves in this area of space are unaffected by our sun, and we don't really know a whole lot about them because we haven't been able to observe them directly through any kind of spacecraft. Oh, right, yeah, and, and this, is a, this is a hypothetical heliopause. Yeah, we have not encountered it yet, So, <laughs> but it's still not technically the edge of the solar system. If you, if you ask NASA, the edge of the solar system would be that area where there's no longer that gravitational factor right. from the sun, uh, which would uh, require us to travel about two light years away from the sun, so that'll take us about 40,000 years for those spacecraft to get there, which is... Uh, you know, set your alarms because <laughs> it's going to take a while. So, in other words, if someone tells you that the Voyager has passed outside the solar system, your response should be, wow, which alien warped it away from there? Because there's no way that it's done that, at least not by the definition that NASA makes. Now, if they, they're talking about the heliopause, that's a different story. Yeah, that's a different, that's a different story. And, and I think they are anticipating that within our lifetimes. Yeah, they said they said they expected it to happen within 10 to 20 years of passing the termination shock. Mm-hmm. So now it's so just probably. Probably, hopefully, fingers crossed before uh, before that plutonium dioxide runs out. Right before twenty twenty or twenty twenty mm-hmm. around that area. So, uh, Lauren, you had an interesting idea, uh, one that, that an experimental idea that we thought we would try, which is that you sent out a tweet saying, "Hey guys, if you have right. any uh, anything interesting that you want to ask." or goofy that you want to ask us about our podcast about the Voyager spacecraft, now's the time to do it. And people did. A couple of people did anyway. So hopefully we'll be able to do this in the future and get um, even more discussion. But this was a fun first attempt. So here are some of the questions we received. Uh, Ian on Twitter asked a whole bunch of questions that I'm going to tackle one at a time. The first was, how fast are the Voyager spacecraft traveling? Good question, Ian. So Voyager 1's traveling at about 3.6 astronomical units per year, and Voyager 2 is poking along at 3.3 astronomical units per year. Now, that might not tell you very much unless you know how long an astronomical unit is. It's a measurement of distance that's based upon the mean distance between Earth and the Sun, and that's equivalent to about 149,597,871 kilometers, or 92,955,807 miles. And because Jonathan loves you, he did the math. Yep, so let's talk about how this sucker breaks down. So remember, Voyager 1's going at 3.6 astronomical units per year. That means it's traveling about 539 million kilometers per year, or 335 million miles per year. And that breaks down to 61,438 kilometers per hour, or 38,176 miles per hour. Either way, it's going wicked fast. Voyager 2 is 3.3 astronomical units per year. That breaks down to 494 million kilometers per year, 
or 56,318 kilometers per hour. And in miles, it's 307 million miles per year, or 35,000 miles per hour. Slightly less wicked fast, but still wicked fast. But still, but still faster than, yeah. than me, for example. His next question, Ian's next question was, are they accelerating? No. Next question was, how long will we remain in contact? Well, like we said, we're not really sure. It's all going to depend upon the power supply mm-hmm. uh, and also whether or not our antenna here on Earth can continue our, to pick up that weak signal. Right. But we expect around 2020, 2025 will be the last we hear of them. Uh, and then Ian and also a listener named Jonathan also, uh, they, they both asked that we somehow reference a uh, a film, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Okay. Uh, what does Voyager have to do with Star Trek The Motion Picture? Well, in a way, Voyager is the bad guy in Star Trek The Motion Picture. In another way, the whole film is the bad guy because this thing is <laughs> slow as heck. I watched it I watched it not for in anticipation of this podcast. I watched it just Independently. to watch it. And mm-hmm. I had not seen it since I was a kid. And I don't think I ever sat through it all the way through yeah. when I was a kid. I don't think I sat through it all the way through as an adult either. I can't, I can't say that I've seen it since I was about eight I years old. I did some old, laundry. So. Yeah, I did. Now, Star Trek II, amazing movie. Star Trek The Motion Picture, not so much. But um, in that story, and this is going to sound really familiar to anyone who watched Star Trek Four because it's a very similar story, a probe that has this weird energy field around it enters our solar system. Actually, first it's just moving through space, but everything it encounters, it's starting to uh, deactivate. And everyone's kind of upset because it's... Because it's, that's terrible. And no, it's heading right to that. Earth. Uh-huh. So what do we do? How do we stop this? And of course, the only person who can stop it is Kirk, who uh, commandeers the star, uh, Starship Enterprise. He is no longer the captain of the Enterprise at that point. He's teaching at Starfleet, but uh, the Enterprise is is docked in a space station around Earth. And so he, after a very long tour of the ship, uh, of the outside of the ship that Scotty takes him on, eventually gets on board. And this movie moves slowly, is what I'm saying. And they just they go and investigate this uh, this probe that's called V'ger. V'ger. And, uh, and V'ger is this artificially intelligent uh, vehicle. And actually, the vehicle contains a smaller probe-like vehicle inside of it. Ultimately, they discovered that what V'ger really is, is Voyager 6. Which doesn't exist yet. No, there's only Voyager 1 and 2. But in this, in the movie, it was Voyager 6 that was supposedly launched toward the end of the 20th century, which I don't know if you noticed, but we're not in that anymore. Um, so, you know, same thing like... I think the eugenics wars in Star Trek II that are that were mentioned that Khan was part of that was supposed to take place in 1996. So we have a lot of catching up to do. We do. Uh, not that I want those to happen anytime soon. But the um, the V'ger was called V'ger because it could no longer uh, uh, see the letters that were missing. So it, uh, all the I missing letters were gone. Okay. So all that was left was the V G E R. So mm-hmm. it's V'ger. Uh, and uh, and it, in the story, what you find out is that aliens had encountered the Voyager 6 probe and had uh, enhanced it so that it could learn everything that is learnable and then return the information to Earth. So it was trying to do a uh, – originally it was supposed to be a benevolent thing, but because V'ger had gained sentience, it no longer completely understood the parameters of its mission, and so it started to go a little bonkers. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, the, the, some crew members aboard the Enterprise end up uh, essentially reasoning with the artificially intelligent probe. So V'ger, like I said, is kind of the bad guy in Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, if you feel like I spoiled that movie, I didn't. It's really, <laughs> I mean, you're better you're, skipping you're, it you're, and you're just go to Star off. Trek. You're better too. off. It's okay. 
Takes I mean, and I say this as someone who loves Star Trek. Okay, I'm, I don't don't get me wrong. I just I feel like that movie was it, it, a lot of the movie is played for grandeur, and the problem is that we've all gotten used to seeing these amazing sort of visuals that are even more amazing than what was available back then. So to kind of have this big reveal moment and you look at the picture and you're like, you're yeah, like, yeah okay. that happens on TV every week. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that's a problem. All right, so uh, uh, then we also had a listener who has the handle Redna, maybe that's his name, uh, who asked, what about future missions with better equipment? Well, we had the Cassini orbiter, but we also, uh, NASA had proposed a couple of joint missions with the European Union, um, but they haven't really worked out. One of them was the Jupiter-Europa orbiter, but that was essentially scrapped because of budget problems, and the other was the Titan-Saturn system mission, which was shelved in order for NASA to concentrate on the Jupiter-Europa orbiter. Oh, which no. Is, uh, yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, but but originally, those were supposed to launch in 2020. Now, because of the budget cutbacks and everything, and, you know, the fact that there just hasn't been the time to develop it, that, that launch window is kind of closed at this right. point. So, um, as far as I know, right now, there are no definitive Other plans. Other deep space or outer planet missions planned. I, I think right now people are really concentrating on uh, on Mars. Mars and the moon. And the moon, and, yeah. And Earth orbit. Those are, those are, I mean, the things that are, I hesitate to say easier, <laughs> but <laughs> right, maybe right, more yeah. achievable, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I have, I have heard that, uh, that, that future moon landings have been scrapped in favor of future Mars landings. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and, and this changes from one administration to another. Absolutely. Because a lot of these considerations are not just technological or scientific, they're also political. I mean, the whole space race was political. The fact that the if there had not been that rivalry between the United States yeah, and the Soviet show, Union, show of muscle, like you know, we we can send we can send this rocket not only to your face but all the way to the moon. Yeah. So I mean, Check that it. was that was yeah. you know, without that kind of uh, pressure, then it makes it harder for scientists to get the money they need to be able to do the science they do. That's a sad fact of the world. Is that you know, money in a way does make the world go round. And that wraps up another classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, This was a lot of fun for us to do. I really had a great time with it. I want to do more episodes that are space-related about specific projects. I've done everything from, like, the Gemini program or Gemini program to, uh, you know, like the Apollo missions, the space shuttle missions. But I want to look at more of the satellite type stuff too. I think that those are really fascinating and I've only done a few of them. So if there are any specific topics, whether they are space related or otherwise, let me know, you know, ones that you want to hear anyway, let me know about it. Uh, reach out on Twitter or on Facebook. The handle for both is techstuffhsw and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. 
That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 